You've been super busy lately? Fine, yeah, I've been super busy. Um, I just finished my first opera, so it was like a ton of work. But it's finally like kind of well the first. Maybe a little bit. Oh, sorry. Bit yeah. Closer. Yeah. So finally, like first draft is finished, which is really good news. So um, that's like a year's worth of work. That finally. How did you? So you're writing. You're writing an opera. How long is the opera? What's the production like? The opera is ninety minutes long. It's being produced and well commissioned and produced by London Contemporary Opera, which is a touring company. Uh, it's like very small scale, um, and it's very like vocally based. So we have. Uh, there's a cast of four singers, an actor, and then the pit band, if you like, is just a male chorus and accordion. So there's like basically virtually, there's only one instrument in it. It's an opera within reason. It's not like this big blown out, like <laughs> no, ridiculous. Yeah. Mess. No, no, it's not. Which would be good. but no, Would you want to do something like that? Um, yeah, well, uh, I actually just went to Covent Garden last week when I was in London to see the Minotaur by Burt Whistle, which I'd seen like five years ago when it was premiered. But uh, they've done a revival now. And it's totally in in the tradition of grand opera, huge orchestra, big cast, massive chorus. But it it really is an amazing, amazing piece. I mean, I've seen loads of new opera that I think is either small scale and thinks it's grand opera. So then it just sounds that you need more players or it just sounds like kind of wimpy. So I think they're just basically two completely different genre. You mean your um, thing and his thing? <clears throat> no, I just mean like, well, I just mean any small scale opera and any big scale opera, I think are two different, totally, totally different things. Would you ever want to do, would you ever want to do something on a large scale like that? Um, yeah, I don't have any, you know, kind of like socialist objection to it or anything like that. Or, um, you know, I think, I think grand opera is amazing but it's just completely different. What do you mean socialist objection? Well, I mean, you know, like some composers would never want to do grand opera because maybe I don't mean socialist. Maybe I just when mean... You, when when um, you mean grand opera, you're not meaning like something in the front. You mean like on the same scale as French grand opera, like huge yeah. orchestra, big production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Opera house as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, also with that kind of heritage behind it. I think there's some composers who don't want to do that, you know, in the way that Boulez doesn't because it's just too loaded in champagne. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, no, I thought, see, I, I thought when you said socialist objection, I thought you mean it costs too much money. Well, and it I, doesn't, think, doesn't but I think that as well, you know, that it's just very decadent and it doesn't have anything to do with the music they write. But I think you can make a loud noise, so do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... What's the scene in... You're the first person who I've interviewed who's kind of spent a lot, who's from London. No, 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 you're not from London, but no, you spent a lot of time. but I yeah, used yeah, to yeah, live yeah, in London yeah. for a while. Yeah. yeah. What's the scene like there? What um, what goes on there? It's kind of complicated. There's, I mean, London is an amazing and massive city. So there's loads going on and there's a, a really a lot there. And there's a lot of orchestras and there's... Well, only two opera houses, but they're, you know, they produce a lot and they do some good stuff. And there are like big audiences for, for opera. I mean, like the Minotaur, for example, last week was sold out. So there's a big public interest in that bird whistle. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, they revived it because it was so successful when it was premiered five years ago. And um, the run this time has, I think, pretty much sold out, which is yeah i mean it's 
a big opera house, so two and a half thousand people every night or something, I guess. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, London is yeah. There's there's a lot going on, but on the other hand, it sometimes feels a little bit conservative. There's, I mean, the thing is with the UK, I think now is that there's a massive, massive, massive pressure on all arts organisations, especially those which are funded by the government, by the Arts Council. Yeah. I read um, about that. <laughs> yeah, there's a massive pressure on them for, for audiences and to show uh, that they're pulling in big audiences and that everything that organisations do is very accessible across like social demographics and age groups and and that kind of thing but they, and they're doing that just because <clears throat> oh you have a responsibility to the taxpayer if you're to have something that can reach them yeah i think it's partly that i think it's partly that um that state-funded art it should have visible benefits and not just the benefit of like well a cultured society should have culture yeah kind of thing and particularly access is is obviously an issue because really most people accessing culture are kind of you know middle-aged or older white quite wealthy uh, middle class or upper class people yeah i mean the arts council has been driving basically ever since tony blair took office has been driving towards better access and bigger audiences um which is definitely a good thing in itself but um it just the knock-on effect of that is that Sometimes the some some really risky and experimental or interesting stuff doesn't happen because it's too high a risk to pay for promoters in terms of audience numbers or access or like kind of public appeal. Does it not happen or does it happen and not get funded? Obviously, some of it happens, but I guess... A lot of that stuff is very much on the fringes. But having said that, uh, my impression when I was living in London was that there, f- there really wasn't a very big fringe. I mean, uh, somebody asked me the other day, actually another Klangnetz composer asked me the other day, um, she was going to London in, next week and she wanted a list of places where she could go to check out like experimental music or theatre or stuff like that. And I like sat down and thought, oh yeah, okay, cool. I replied and... Uh, my list consisted of two places. And then I was like, this is really bad. Surely there's somewhere else that's doing experimental music. But actually, really, I really couldn't think of anywhere venue-wise that was really had anything more than a kind of smattering of new or like vaguely experimental work. And even some of those places do a lot of like a very broad range of stuff in order to obviously maximize kind of audience yeah, 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 and yeah. stuff like that. I almost like that type of thinking though. Okay, so if you're in an environment like that, like, okay, so taking out your word, like the, the conservative environment that's happening in London because of how tax structures work and how the conservative political climate concerning the arts. Okay, so that's the environment you're in. You can either leave that environment or find a way to just do what you can to actually let weird stuff in yeah. that you want. And if you're going to do that, then I think it's okay to be like, okay, a certain part of the season is going to be this conservative stuff that will allow us to get this money. And then we will take the money that we get and then we will kind of put some aside for us to actually make as much space as is politically possible for the weird stuff to happen. 
Yeah, t- I totally agree with that. I mean, I don't see any of that stuff happening in London as a real problem, except it's a very expensive city and space is at a real premium. So it's really actually quite difficult to do stuff on the fringes when you don't have any money. Uh, I mean, it's obviously easy to get people to perform and stuff like that, but to find an audience and to um, and to find a venue or you know any kind of space to do stuff in, what depending a- on what you want to do. Can what, be tricky. what about what about like private in like what about some crazy rich old lady who is like i love uh i love experimental stuff and there's always an old widow in my head for some reason <laughs> well i haven't met any of those but obviously yeah. if you know one then i'd love to be introduced yeah exactly um yeah. i mean i think they're probably few and far between i mean there's obviously there's um a kind of growing private patronage of like the more standard classical music and uh, well across all of the arts like more establishment galleries and orchestras and opera houses and things like that which the government is also really pushing for at the moment i mean they i think they very much see the way forward as the american way they don't see oh they see they do they do do. the current conservative government i mean they're not withdrawing uh i mean they've been cutting back arts council funding uh, but they're not withdrawing it but but they're really pushing to try and increase private patronage yeah, that's happening. That's <clears throat> happening here in what well, we're in Berlin right now. I should probably say that for anybody <laughs> yeah. who's in this apartment. That's actually happening here. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, that's actually happening here too. When if you look at the back of like a Merit's music or the Ultrashaw concerts, yeah. you'll be like, oh, Siemens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's happening here for ages. I guess. How does this? Do you mind if we talk about London for a little bit? No, yeah, like go the first, for it. Uh, yeah, how does this affect the composers living there? What's it like for them? I mean, there's quite a few opportunities in London. There's some professional development schemes. I mean, we're talking about young, I guess, kind of emerging composers now. There's some organizations and some orchestras and things like that, which have like programs to uh, help develop emerging composers. But um, the Arts Council forged a, forced a merger between four different new music organizations about three years ago uh, and to form one large organization, which has turned into something of a disaster because it's massively reduced the number of opportunities and the amount of support for a young and emerging composers, which is a shame. And then I think on a kind of lifestyle level, yeah, there's loads, there's tons of concerts and kind of a lot going on. But again, it might not be such a massive range for composers to kind of, you know, hear what's out there. And also one of the reasons I left actually was because London is really so expensive that I think as a composer, you often find yourself teaching or doing other work for most of your time. And then the amount of time that you have in your life to compose that gets really, really squeezed into a corner. And then as a result, uh, it's very difficult to develop yourself professionally and to try and find composing opportunities which might give you some income as well. Yeah, it's a financial um, it's a financial trap, right? Yeah, Because it's exactly. impossible to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. It just gets worse and worse. So then you have to do more teaching and, and so on and so on. So it's very difficult to break that cycle in that city. I think a lot of the composers I know that are, or my peers in the UK who are now say more successful quite a few of them spent time out of london for three or four years in order to just basically write 
and and kind of build up a body of work that that's they can then crazy. go out. That's crazy. And, and then they can't. They're like, I need to get. Then why go back? Uh, well, because that's where the that's where the opportunities are. I mean, because there's you know there's also an element of 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 the the personal connection and going to concerts and meeting people and meeting the people who are. I mean, just like in Germany, just like anywhere. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I you know I in my brain I was being an idiot and like. Uh saying that they actually went to another city that had oper- they they left no, the no, UK no, no, no. to like I mean, go like, stay in some cottage somewhere yeah, yeah, totally. in some yeah, exactly. in some like horrific you know like a uh, uh, town <laughs> outside of Huddersfield or something or, exactly yeah yeah. yeah yeah to write and to just build up a body of work or or I mean the other alternative as well like I mean which is pretty universal is to just keep studying uh, and so you know like do your masters do your PhD just so that you can kind of stay as a student rather than having to work but actually in the UK now anyway the kind of educational fees are really very high and it's that is also going kind you of, don't do you can, you're not allowed to say that to me <laughs> yeah I know exactly but yeah that's all heading in an American direction too so actually it's, it's studying unless you I do a PhD which is government funded then uh, you know that's no longer a kind of safe haven a financial haven for you to work is there a certain amount of you keep on saying oh going in the american direction going in the american direction is there a certain amount of like dread that is like oh god here we go (laughs) this is gonna not be this is gonna only get more difficult for us because of this i don't know dread's a hard word yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so don't so okay (laughs) yeah yeah uh, so okay let's uh i feel like i'm angst, bitching to your angst? face <laughs> no, you're what I think you're what to my i said i feel like i'm you know like saying bad things about america to your face d- d- but, feel free to, <laughs> but you can do that why why wouldn't you be able to do that i mean um, I'm, what am, I, am i gonna take it personally no i'm i mean the thing is i think in some ways i'm actually a supporter of um making arts organizations more accountable and driving getting more out of them for for the money that they're given especially actually when it comes to access and um, audiences and kind of looking for, you know, thinking out of the box, basically. But um, on the other hand, I do think that a nation has to take its cultural heritage. Actually, I don't like the word nation because I don't really believe in nations. But I mean, communities need to take their cultural heritage seriously. And um, I think for the amount of money that it costs in the public purse to do that, as a proportion of what you spend on all sorts of other things um, is a very small price to pay and that there should that public funding should continue for the arts in general. The problem is it's that where the easy, when it comes to like some conservative saying, like talking about waste and things that are not needed in the government and stuff like that, we're such easy targets. And I don't mean like personally, like, okay, we're not like aggressive people. I mean, like, it's very easy to point to it and be like, we don't need that. Like what is yeah, the, yeah. what what is the immediate benefit to that? Yeah. And there's really no you really can't give an answer that's on the same level as universal health care. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. I, so even though course. it's a small amount and it's not really doing anything to really kind of like make big deficits, it, we're, it's still an easy scapegoat. It's still an easy like finger to point at and be like, see, look at all this waste. Let's get rid of that. I agree, and you can't. It's a very intangible benefits and you can't really make it concrete anyway. But I mean, I, I think this is why it's important to keep driving forward on access and and education in the arts and that kind of thing. Because the more uh, people in the public who 
benefit from government spending on the arts then the more that perception changes and the more that there is like tangible value to it and i you know and uh it shouldn't be that the government just spends taxpayers money on supporting the royal opera house when the majority of the people who go to the royal opera house are well let's just say definitely paying their the higher tax band i mean you know what i mean yeah yeah. i mean the model is not to tax the rich to spend on the rich i think you have a good general overview about how these things work how does this affect your music and the social context that you want to be presented you want to present yourself in oh it doesn't really (laughs) it doesn't nah well you don't don't feel the need to fit you don't need to feel the need to have a, a like have like a social opinion about something and then be able to put your music in a context that you're comfortable with in terms of that do you know what i mean when i say that i do know what you mean by that but i don't i don't have a problem with any contexts so to speak i'm not the kind of person who think that you know concert halls are bad and a string quartet is bad or you know that that everything has to be kind of reinvented but I think, I mean, for me, I think really when I'm composing from my artistic point of view, it's just, I'm just interested in the audience experience and the, the kind of... Oh, that's of, exactly what I mean, though. Yeah, well, I, but I mean, I mean, but the, the communic, the effective communication of the music and, I mean, I suppose I'm moving away from writing concert music or at least i have been moving away from writing concert music in the last few years that is in the kind of traditional sense chamber music or or whatever but that's not through a desire to kind of make any political statement it's just that i suppose i'm looking for ways to put the audience on the edge of their seat uh, I really think music, the best, my personal, like, favorite kind of music is the music that kind of grabs you by the balls. When I was a kid, the music I kind of really got me into classical music is, was like the Russian stuff, like Prokofiev and Rachmaninoff and Stravinsky and Shostakovich. And, and I was really never really interested in the more refined craft, if you like, of the kind of German school or, or French you mean music in- or anything. I just like the stuff that was loud and like had was like out, you know, just big and brash. And and you're still like that as a composer. You and just I'm totally still like that. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally still like that. So give me an example of that in a uh, in a piece that you're like, okay, here is the thing in it that's going to you know grab you by the balls. <clears throat> well, I mean, when as I said, I was just moving away from writing concert music. By which I mean, I suppose now like the pieces, pretty much all of the pieces I've written in the last two or three years have incorporated text in some way in like spoken text into them so i'm just uh i suppose i'm just looking for ways that the concert presentation using music and instrumentalists can like have a more direct narrative or meaning or connection with the audience and so i guess i mean it might be other composers would go about this in other ways but for me, uh, using spoken text in work is like now adding a kind of more visceral level to the music, which I hope is, as I said, putting the audience on the edge of their seat. What kind of text do you use? What are you working? What are you working with? How you decide how <clears throat> to use a text, or what uh, what text to use? It's been a variety. Um, I've used quite a bit of poetry 
in the last two years, mainly by one poet, British poet called Simon Howard. But um, I've also done a project working with a, another poet who used to be a professional boxer. So wait, what? Really? He, yeah. So he got punched. Really? So like the first half of his <clears throat> career, or I don't know however long he was a boxer for, he was just getting punched in the face, <laughs> and then he went from that to poetry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is Via philosophy, I think he did. Um, I think he stud- did a degree in philosophy at university. But yeah, he's now a poet and is doing a PhD in London and and has published a lot and teaches and stuff. But he was he was a boxer. He doesn't do boxing anymore. He does do some wrestling still, teaching and practicing. Really? Um, yeah. How old is he? Uh, he's twenty nine, thirty, something like that. When was he? When was he hitting people? I I associate boxing with brain damage. Yeah. Well, I think actually that's why he gave it up because he was a pretty high functioning boxer, let's say, and realized that he, you know, basically had to make a choice and didn't want to end up with long-term brain damage yeah <laughs> so, so i think that's why he gave up okay so what's his what's his but poetry, his, uh, like, why did you mean, his poetry is really has some really violent elements to it and it's really quite visceral and it's some of it like as i say kind of grabs you by the balls um and is quite uncompromising and aggressive he's written a book about of poetry all about boxing um called fights uh, and actually, I've, we, we used we did a project together last year with the London Sinfonietta, which was a piece that we, a collaborative piece. So he was writing new material and I was writing new material that was about boxing and specifically about a true story between two very well-known boxers. I mean, he wrote a lot of new material, but we also did use a couple of existing poems from, from this book that he'd written called Fights, which is um, a whole set of poems, I think 120 poems or something like that, about boxing. And how do you set something like that? Uh, I mean, actually, our, our idea is to do a, a one-hour-long kind of immersive piece, which might be in like an old boxing hall or a warehouse or somewhere, which might be more closely related to the world of boxing than um, than a concert hall. But for this project, we were doing like a twenty-minute preview of that piece, so we basically were working with an ensemble and two male vocalists and I, I say vocalists rather than singers because actually all of pretty much all of the text is spoken um or shouted or whatever but there's the, i think each singer sings one note towards the end and that's the only note that's sung in the, in the whole piece so in answer to the question about setting text for that project i mean uh, uh, it was we were trying to go for a real combination of poetry and music so that the form and value of the poetry wasn't torn apart by traditional song setting so you had like which is always like which is always the way if you set poem to music yeah 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 but it's also that way putting things out there is so loaded already that it's important you should just it's good that you're making your own context almost yeah yeah Yeah. and i kind of think i mean Although the idea was not a kind of very direct narrative in that we had two voices and that they were supposed to be two different boxes. But I mean, nevertheless, the idea of people singing about men singing about boxing to me just doesn't do anything for me. So some of it was like kind of a musical tableau, if you like, that might be responses to Steve's poetry. And then other bits would be kind of like just musical 
soundscapes where there would be like poetry recital, if you like, over the top. Are, are there any conclusions you came to by doing this project? What was the main idea? Is there is there a message in it? Because right now you're describing something to me that's very clear concept, very clear context that you're putting it in. Like we wanted it in an old box, you know, yeah. the venue you choose. In a certain way, going back to what we were talking about before, it almost is presenting itself as a very kind of, as far as like how things get done in London, you were saying. Mm. It's, okay, it's not a traditional venue at all in that sense. But the message of it, I think, maybe could have the potential of being very, very tangible message to the public, which is what the Arts <clears throat> Council was going towards. So what is the, is there a clear message to this? Why, why do something like this? Yeah. Other than it being interesting, which is, it, I th- do think it is interesting, but. Yeah. Well, I think at the bottom of it, I mean, the, what the message was that Steve and I had was, or what the exploration was. I don't think we were taking a particular side in the debate, but it was to try and look at the way that violence different types of violence are sanctioned in society and some violence is very acceptable um, in certain contexts and other violence is obviously unacceptable boxing Um, wars um, yeah exactly boxing wars police violence i mean we'd actually when we pitched this project to the sinfonietta we pitched them two different projects and the other one was about sanctioned uh, violent methods of restraint which were um in much more common usage by the police in the 70s and 80s in the uk at least anyway explain that again to me sanctioned violent methods of restraint yeah what is that i I don't so i mean so for example we or steve the poet has these old police training manuals from the 70s and 80s which really give very clear instruction and demonstration of how to like break someone's arm in order to restrain them or you know kind of seriously injure somebody but not kill them obviously but but ways like very aggressive ways that the police would use to restrain somebody or to catch them or whatever do you see what i mean jesus yeah i mean which would be unacceptable (laughs) well (laughs) largely unacceptable but i mean there's still been cases in the uk during some of the student riots a couple of years ago and the and the riots in london last year of unacceptable police tactics Oh my so. god! So that was one idea. Yeah. So god, that thank, was. Thank God for tasers. Yeah. <laughs> now that I think about exactly. it, I'd rather get tased and have my arm broken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty pretty grim, isn't it, to have your arm broken and that's like permanent damage, kind of. Even if it's not permanent, it's like long, like your arm got broken. Yeah. You're out of commission for a while. Yeah. yeah exactly. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So obviously, what are these two projects had in common were the idea of sanctioned violence and what is acceptable in society and actually how tragic that can be i mean in the case of boxing because it's voluntary as opposed to the police thing that how like the kind of emotional states and the mental states of this and how you know for example that fights may not always be i mean i don't know so much about this as steve but the way that fights may not always be that people may allow themselves to be beaten up or people may allow themselves to lose um in certain contexts with with boxers and then the long-term damage of brain damage and health problems and stuff like that it's a tricky concrete subject yeah 
how did you approach it? Were you worried of any trappings of not even sounding, <clears throat> I don't want to, like not sounding cheesy, but being too one-sided? Do you think you were fair? Do you think it's possible to be fair? Well, as I say, I don't think we were taking, it wasn't a political piece in a way. We weren't saying this is really bad. We were just saying this is what it is. This particular project was about a true story between two boxers and it was a story of revenge really um, and about one boxer using illegal methods to win fights for which he was then investigated over a long period of time and then eventually kind of truth came out and and justice was done effectively because a guy that he had previously defeated under illegal conditions if you like then then they had a rematch and and the good guy won but yeah, we, we weren't taking a political point of view. We were just writing, you know, a kind of dramatic semi-narrative but about is, this. Yeah, But isn't it with music, and I always kind of try and make this argument, isn't it impossible not to take a political point of view when you're setting it to music? Because absolute music, you know, meaning, you know, no words, no associations by itself... Mm has still without it has very strong emotional associations. Yeah. Then you're always, whether you're aware of it or not, going to give it a slant. Even if you're using a straight text or, you know, or something taken verbatim, that's something that happened. Yeah. But I think the other aspect is that um, providing you, well, there are several aspects. One is, I think, providing you abstracting the subject material away from a kind of news report or a kind of, very single direction kind of hollywood style film or whatever then you you know you're stepping away from a very direct p- political message and then the other thing is you may yeah you may uh, obviously you can't avoid giving a slant and lending emotion to anything when you write music that's kind of the point of doing it but yeah, you want them to feel a certain yeah. way when you're de- dealing yeah. with the text and but it doesn't necessarily mean that through the course of an entire piece you want them to feel the same way all of the time and you can still like presenting balanced journalism you can still present you know different points of view or different slants at different times so that the overall picture may still have a a message or a bias but it's definitely more complex than telling the audience this is what you should think about this how did you present the complexity well i mean in this preview version we just presented we were just presented three tableau, well, three, four tableau actually about this story, but they weren't narrative in many senses. And they were just really looking at different facets of boxing. So one was looking at the viol- one section was looking very much at the violence of a fight. One section was looking at the kind of backstory and the kind of mental preparation and that kind of like mental zone of which I suppose any sportsman goes through of kind of preparation and wanting to win and focus and summoning kind of emotional and mental support for the physical activity. Uh, And then another was looking at the kind of consequences of injury and um, like a boxer, for example, in this case, who'd lost the ability to speak after he'd been punched really hard on the head and just started kind of coming out with gibberish. Um, in a kind of semi-delirious state. Permanently? No, I mean immediately after. Oh, so okay. 
um, not permanently. And then, and then the final section was a much more, I suppose, slanted and reflective section, which was looking at, as I said before, the kind of more tragic, long-term elements of it. So in terms of how we presented the complexity, I mean, I think through contrast. Yes. Yes, this is a kind, kind of love. Yes, this man loved. His humility would humble them to one solitude. Yes, but it is not a sole quality, an elegy to honour and courage, the constituents of love, along with fidelity. Is kept counsel to proffer dignity where what a swelling was once in residence. We wept for your home here. Blood fussing from your lips, becoming your eyes as though you had been beside a bomb blast. And even then, with heart, you looked bound but accepted man's responsibility to accept defeat.
How did the audience react to this? Well, because you're dealing with concrete things, so yeah, and, and, in, and in a certain way, it's dealing with the, the subject matter in such a knowable, tangible way. It's impossible for it to go over people's heads in a way. Yeah, right? which is so absolutely great. So what I mean, I want. That, that means yeah. that means that everybody's able to have an opinion. So you must have gotten lots of feedback. How did people react to this? Did they think about it? Yeah, we did get lots of feedback, and. It was all very good. Everybody, interestingly, were presented in the same evening alongside two other productions, which were music theatre. One, so with one was with puppetry, so actual kind of actors and puppet puppets and stuff on stage, accompanied by music. Um, and then another one was with a troupe of actors and dancers, accompanied by music. So the other two ones were actual music theatre productions, and ours was not. It was just the ensemble in a concert presentation if you like with the two vocalists with music stands and and everything you know there was no staging but everybody commented or most people commented that they that their experience of the piece was quite theatrical and that they they were gripped by it and that they could they felt like they were on an emotional journey that had some kind of narrative feeling behind it i suppose even though there wasn't direct narrative story to what we presented i mean there was a backstory but i mean that from what you got from the actual piece um and we were really pleased with that because that was kind of what we were aiming for and we were very pleased that we we really really wanted to do a concert presentation piece and not to do music theater but i was very pleased that we still managed to tell a story in quotes if you like through a non-theatrical medium. Did they come to any conclusions? Like you said, okay, no, so the... Uh, um, I don't think so. So, so. so the piece is not meant to have any conclusions, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that the listener isn't going to, in relationship to what they were feeling to the piece, come to a different opinion on something. Yeah, I don't think... We didn't get any feedback which said, this has really changed my opinion about boxing or violence. I mean, or violence, anything like I would that. say not boxing. <laughs> Everybody has, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, no, I don't think I don't think it was that direct, uh, that literal. What are you looking to give people then, just to have them start thinking about something? Or yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think just when people step into a concert space or whatever, or hear my work. I just want to, I mean, it sounds terribly cheesy, but I just want to take them on a journey and for that journey to be as immersive and involving as possible. But it's not that I have a particular intention always to change their minds or to even say, I mean, I think you can, you know, take people on emotional journeys which don't have any direct literal translation that you could process in a kind of linguistic thought way if you yeah know exactly I mean. which is exactly yeah. what non-text-based chamber music is i mean if you see what i mean <clears throat> yeah, that's what i mean but that's why I'm, maybe i'm asking you this because this is text-based so yeah. yeah but this is i think my the thing about my approach to using text is that i'm not i mean some pieces of obviously i've done which are narrative pieces like the opera that i've just finished but a lot of the concert pieces which are using text it's not the idea of using text is not to tell like a kind of narrative story or anything like that it's just using linguistic stuff maybe using linguistic stuff to support and provide another angle on different like emotional states or something like that through like that you would have in chamber music anyway this was done in london yeah is mo- most of your stuff is done in london at the moment, most of my stuff is done in London. I'm gradually doing a few more little projects in Berlin, but... Why not more in Berlin? I don't know. It just I haven't been that good about looking for stuff in Berlin. And I mean, you must, of course, have this across the Atlantic, but there's a real divide along the English Channel. Culturally. Culturally. Well, yeah. musically, yeah. Well, yeah. and culturally, and so, and actually, physically too. There, and physically they, too. That is a real well. Not body now of we water. have a tunnel. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the the music that tours quite happily between, say, uh, northern continental Europe doesn't. I mean, there's just a a fracture between the UK and the rest of Europe, and so it would be really nice to more performances of my work and more project opportunities in Berlin or in continental Europe. I'm happy that this is happening slowly, but yeah, it has kind of taken a while. Why do you think it's taken a while? Well, as I say, because, I mean, I had this steady stream of commissions from London, so I haven't really put a lot of energy into getting projects off the ground in Germany because I've just been happily getting on with my work in London and also I think like anywhere I mean I studied in London and I have lots of contacts in London and I you know and that that really helps I didn't study in Berlin or in Germany so this whole kind of process of referral and mentorship if you like it's really the new music community uh, I haven't had access to that in Germany so you know that makes a difference. Yeah, it's really hard to crack that nut open if you don't develop and come up in the city that you're in. I was lucky enough that I actually got, I was 
I was here. I was st- I studied here for two years, and I say studying yeah. ah, quotations okay. ah, okay. <laughs> because of that I kind of met some. It was a good way to meet. People. Yeah, yeah, and then also just through like working on non musical things for yeah. well, working on stuff that didn't have to do with my own compositions for other musicians, kind of mm-hmm. like introduced me to that circle, which helped me out. A yeah, but but it's difficult if you're just, if you're just showing up. Yeah. In, then it's more than exactly yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not like oh my god a composer we were looking for one yeah exactly <laughs> there's a billion exactly. here yeah. exactly but it's cool you know i've um i'm like slowly building up working relationships with um some ensembles here and one or two producers and you know so we're getting some projects off the ground so i think in you know 2014 and 15 i should be doing more in Berlin, which would be good. You always got it's always got to be two years ahead, you know. And also, my opera actually is supposed to be being premiered in in Vienna rather than in London. Oh, Although that's there will cool. be a London performance, cool. but but it's being premiered in Vienna, so that's good. You were talking about like uh, that real kind of cultural divide. Do you think that's also kind of now that you're here and you're trying to get stuff done here? Mm. Do you think that cultural divide and I'm basically talking about style now oh right like do you think that it's harder or you have to make a harder case for yourself to convince people that this is also good and you should program it even though it's not hardcore german modernism whatever you want to call it i don't know it's the honest answer because i mean my music is definitely not hardcore modernism I think any composer or well, anyway, the process of studying in a conservatoire and stuff like that made it take a while for me to come to terms with that. But I'm very happy that my, that my music is what it is now. Why did that happen? Why did it take you a long time in an academic setting to make you happy with what you're doing? Well, cause I think there is, even though London is in many, well, by German standards, quite conservative in its new music output, there's definitely, I think any, most of the conservatoires in London, they have an academic, well, they have an aesthetic slant. And I think with the best will in the world, no matter how much you say we are trying to bring out the inner voice of whichever student is in front of us at the moment, then there's still a kind of, you know, aesthetic slant, which is great. I mean, which is, which is fine. And also actually, because I think most young people going to conservatoires will probably have less have had less exposure to hardcore modernist music than they would have done to postmodern minimalism for example yeah um just because of well the fact that hardcore modernist music doesn't get performed in london at all really very very infrequently yeah i think you have to push the pendulum in every direction and then gradually it just rests where it rests so maybe it's just a process that every composer goes through but i feel like i'm now coming to that point where i feel like my you know, pendulum is resting in the right place. I don't, well, it, it's a, like, I think that was uh, beautifully put, but I don't think, <laughs> but I I don't think it is a process that every composer has to go through. I think no, you can not. ignore that in okay. a, yourself and be like, this is what's going on. This is where I'm going to stay. And there's no, no, not every composer has to deal ha- with a, a coming to terms process. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's important but it can be avoided. And if you decide to stay in an institution or to never be in an institution and just kind of fit well into the environment that you're in, you don't have to come to terms with that. But I think there is a process in every composer of 
getting to the point where you're writing music from your heart or your genitals or whatever rather than your those are the only cortex. two places those are the only two places <laughs> yeah the, your stomach <laughs> um but like i like yeah you, I, I like that, how you made it uh um like universal by saying genitals <laughs> because you're like, yeah totally yeah, yeah but like yeah where you're writing music not from just from the head but there's something like more you know that you access that kind of you it's like reverse engineering isn't it that when you're composing music you're accessing that area that is accessed when you hear music that you really really love yes yeah yeah i actually still think of it as like brain music even though you're doing that but it's more of the center that like releases dopamine yeah then yeah uh the center that makes you objectively interested in something exactly Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and i guess for really good music you have to have both of those areas like dinging yeah so can you tell me the story of you coming to terms being happy with what you're doing finding that this is what you wanted to do and in a certain way having to not care about other things that you felt obligated to care about through outside musically you mean musically yeah yeah yeah. yeah. stylistically yeah not or like you can do socially how i'm gonna make a living <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 um the, but those things actually do fit together as far as yeah. like pressures that push you in certain directions. So in a way, that's what I'm trying to mm. get you to talk about. I mean, coming to terms is maybe too loaded because the whole process has been very enjoyable. And I would never have wanted to end up at the place that I'm at now in my head composing without having gone through that process. I mean, I would never have wanted to just, you know, start yeah, I mean, the process have been great. I didn't study music as a bachelor's, so I did something totally different. What did you study? Um, uh, natural sciences and then experimental psychology. So like rats and things. And then I did a master's in composition after that. So uh, for a while I felt like, oh, I, you know, uh, I, I should be plugging some kind of academic holes in my musical education. But actually then I realized... I didn't really need to, or it wasn't so important, um, at least for composing anyway. And my experience of doing a master's at the Royal Academy was really amazing, and it totally changed my life, and I had a great teacher. Who was the teacher? The teacher was Philip Cashian, who's quite a well-known composer in the UK. I guess the experience of doing the master's really... The, the thing is about the academy is that they don't. nobody really talks about aesthetics there. Nobody wants to talk about it. But it was an incredible training in technique and in and also in repertoire, as I say, like exposure to stuff that I hadn't come across before. Nobody wants to talk about aesthetics? Not really. So it's it's literally this is how you orchestrate, this is the range of the flute, this is you know, this is your Bach counterpoint exercise. No, well, there's a little bit of that, but not at master's level so much. I mean, we did orchestration and stuff like that, but no, I mean people want to talk about it's a very, very good training in compositional technique. What to do with your material, if you like. Okay. And how to write music and how to write music that makes sense in a formal structure or in, you know, in any kind of form. You know, all, the, all to really equip you with great compositional tools in texture and harmony and orchestration and form and all of these things. But nobody really wants to 
ask the questions why are you doing this or what do you want to say or where does your work fit into other composers work do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing i just think it's a thing for me it was a good thing at that time because i think if somebody i mean i don't think it makes any sense to ask the question why are you doing this when you're not really doing yet what you when you're not really doing something that makes any sense how old are you at this point uh 23 okay yeah that makes okay that's you know Um, i think that's young enough to still be focusing on your vocation rather than yeah totally yeah it was exactly it was very vocational course and very very intense and loads and loads of performance opportunities with lots of professional really good professional groups so um it was really brilliant for launching you off basically into the london new music scene if you like uh, and equipping you with great compositional tools but then i suppose the process after that as a composer was i mean then for several years i was you know kind of absorbing what i had learned and putting those compositional vocationally vocationally and my pieces got better in terms of structure and form and you know consistency and making sense but it was only then at that stage that I think I started asking questions. Am I happy with what I'm doing? And, you know, is this what I want to hear kind of thing? And then I suppose I, yeah, then just started writing pieces that went in a, maybe a more simple direction or, for example, incorporating text or whatever, various different things. Um, and then that started changing. And so then I felt more... Like I wanted to think about other music, like the subject matter of my music, if you like, and working with text and working with people who weren't composers and how I wanted the concert experience to be and that kind of thing. So you really came to that conclusion naturally then? Like no one ever forced you to ask yourself why? No, 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 the opposite. And uh, you were in an institution. That's almost, that's very strange to me because it's almost in a way that even if it's not being taught in class, like, I don't know, I'm not saying there's like aesthetics 101, but like, you know, even if a composition teacher is saying this section is too long, I think people are going to get bored or talking about very uh, technical things. Yeah. You're still surrounded by colleagues who have an opinion on what you're doing probably beyond uh, how technically effective you can be within a composition. Yeah. So that's weird that that wouldn't that wouldn't come up in a conversation outside of a classroom between colleagues. Yeah, it didn't really. Actually, I don't think. Is that like a, you were that people are afraid to? Okay, I don't know if I should be playing into like stereotypes here. <laughs> but do you think do you think it's like afraid to be rude or step on somebody's? Uh, Step on somebody's toes. <laughs> oh, because kind of for the environments, no. the environments where I am, even if it wasn't taught in a class, I, you still be, you're still friends with these people. And then you, not, you don't get in each other's faces, but you chat. That's the fun part. That's the funnest part. Challenging one another, not letting something slide and saying, okay, that's just his thing to really kind of question them and push them. So that didn't happen. Well, you know, I think again, coming back to this kind of, uh, academic uh, maybe not academic institution but anyway whatever this kind of you know this kind of intellectualization of music and that the more complex it is the more intelligent the composer or the more that there's a journey that one should go on towards complexity rather than in the opposite direction 
as a student in these institutions. And so uh, there was probably, like I think somebody writing kind of post-minimalist music, minimalist music in that environment would be aesthetically questioned. But it never happened in the opposite direction as far as I remember. But your stuff isn't super complex. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So nobody... I'm, yeah, I'm, and no, I mean, and my stuff wasn't super complex when I was a student either, but it was much more like English pastoral new music. What does that mean, English pastoral <laughs> new music? I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't know, but I know when I I love it. that pause, though, like long, I'm keeping that pause in. Like, yeah. I love I that don't know pause, what it is. like, oh, do I say this loaded thing where he questions yeah, me on Exactly. It? Yeah, Let's yeah. not go there. Uh, I don't know, but I know what it is when I hear it. That's not fair. Oh, come on. You know what it is. It's just, I, you I, know, it's just in the same way. It's just a thing. It's just a kind of post-tonal, very beautifully orchestrated, you know, good craft, but it just never grabs you by the balls. Kind of music. And that's what you were doing when you were there. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Okay. And that's basically, I think that's what a lot of British new music is like. That's definitely what the thing is. The national style, if you like. What's, that, that's, this kind of post-Britain thing. That's what people's expectations are. Like, he's kind of like the person that everybody bows to there. Well, actually, I would say, yeah, I mean, a lot of people do. I'd say some people just actually don't like Britain. But at the end of the day, the new music landscape in the UK is still post-Britain-esque. I mean, what I'm thinking, like, you say that to me, and then I think of, uh, like, these British complexity composers, but I guess they don't get nearly... Oh, like who? You mean, like, Fernie Ho? Yeah, like, Fernie Ho. Yeah, but he left Britain and has only just come back after, like, 30 years. Okay, yeah, it's true. And uh, (laughs) And that's um, why. And his music almost never gets performed in the UK. What about... What's going on in Huddersfield right now? Yeah, uh, his yeah, that's a bit of an island. And I mean, most of the work that gets what happens in Huddersfield is not reflected in what happens in like the kind of general concert series in London and what people are programming through the rest of the year, through the rest of the country. Huddersfield is like a kind of beacon of presenting what's happening in Europe to the UK. Uh, oh, which is I amazing, see. It's like the opposite thing. Amazing yeah. for that. It's great. You hear stuff at Huddersfield that you will never hear anywhere else in the UK at any other time of the year. So uh, there's one other festival actually, which is pretty good, called the Sounds New Festival in Canterbury, which is kind of younger and growing, um, and is presenting a lot of new music um, and also new music from Europe. But it still doesn't, as far as I know, present as much of the kind of European modernism that you can hear at Huddersfield. And, you know, and Fernie Ho does get played a lot at Huddersfield um, and other British composers like James Dillon, who's pretty complex, um, and Rebecca Saunders, for example, who also, you know, left the UK and now lives in Berlin and has done for years. Richard Barrett. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, they are there, but but they're not in the UK producing or being performed in the UK. You think, you think the tides will ever shift? I guess it certainly isn't looking that way, being what you described at the beginning of this interview of how the funding is happening. That's not going to fit well into a Rebecca Saunders concert or... Yeah, probably it won't change very much, but there's always these, you know, paradigm shift moments where things change and... But you can't predict that. But you can't predict that. And how could, like, I'm trying to even imagine something that would 
some huge event that would be like, okay, we got to do new music from uh, continental <laughs> Europe now. Yeah, I don't know yeah. either. You think you're going to uh, stay here in Berlin? Um, well, if you'd asked me like actually a month ago, I would have said yes, definitely. And suddenly at the beginning of January, I had like January moment and probably to do with finishing this opera as well, which has like been going for years and years on and off. Um, January what's a January moment well you know it's kind of like new year new life oh resolution yeah, yeah. okay it's kind of like where okay. am I going what am I doing life planning moment and so I've slightly itchy feet at the moment I'm actually back at the Royal Academy in London doing a PhD now and have been since September but I'm just commuting in from oh, Berlin okay. but that doesn't require me to move back to London that's a god-awful commute but <laughs> and what would you uh, yeah like? but I don't have to go in that often and um it's a funded PhD, so... Once a month? Yeah. I mean, I'm usually in London more often than that anyway, so I can just fit it in with what I'm doing. Okay. Um, and my, my teacher actually studied with Cargill in Germany when he was my age or something. So he's totally into the idea of soaking up some European music and not, okay, not cool. staying in the UK. Um, so that's all working out fine. But yeah, just itchy feet in the sense that... Um, yeah, I'll probably stay for a while. I think I'll definitely keep a base in Berlin for quite a while. But I might want to live somewhere else. In fact, I'm really thinking about going to America at some point. No, why? <laughs> it's just a really cool country. <laughs> Where in America? Can I guess? Uh, yeah, go and guess. Nah, I don't want to guess. Never mind. I was well, going to say, well, obviously New York, New York would be an option, but... Nah. Some... Austin, probably. Austin? Yeah. Oh, God. I would have never guessed that. But I, that, that kind of makes sense. Kind of. Why? Uh, well, I went to visit there um, in March this year, and I just really, really love the city. I mean, not for any musical reason. Yeah, I don't know. Just a cool place to go and live. Get an Airstream trailer, you know, take a little keyboard. I hope you do <laughs> it's that. the American that's, dream. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Austin. So, Austin's cool though that's the like, yeah austin's yeah, really yeah, really yeah. really cool i yeah. really totally loved it when i was there yeah i mean people are gonna be like texas, texas? yeah 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 <laughs> no, no 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 austin's cool yeah yeah well um you know say hello to some armadillos for me when you go there. Yeah, yeah yeah well thank you for doing this no worries thank you yeah. very much yeah we finally had it done <laughs>